Welcome to Money Making Conversations. It's the show that shares the secrets of success experienced firsthand by marketing and branding expert Rashawn McDonald. I will know. He's given me advice on many occasions, and in case you didn't notice, I'm not broke. You know he'll be interviewing celebrity CEOs, entrepreneurs, and industry decision makers. It's what he likes to do. It's what he likes to share. Now it's time to hear from my man, Rashawn McDonald. Money Making Conversations. Here we go. Welcome to Money Making Conversation. I am your host, Rashawn McDonald. It's time to stop reading other people's success stories. You hear me say that every week. I'm going to say it every week so you can get it in your head. It's time to stop reading other people's success stories and start writing your own. Always lead with your gifts. People talk about passion. Lead with your gifts. And don't let your age, friends, family, or coworkers stop you from planning or living your dreams. I say that every week. I didn't find out who I was mentally. I was very successful until my 40s when I really started accepting my gifts, accepting responsibilities. So it may not happen when you're in your 20s, your 30s, your 40s. It may happen in your 50s, 60s, 70s. But don't let age determine your dream capabilities. My interviews I provide on Money Making Conversations are with celebrities, CEOs, entrepreneurs, and people I like to call industry decision makers. My next guest is Jonathan Morris. I'm going to call him a good friend. He's straight out of Fort Worth, Texas. He's an entrepreneur <laughs> and the host of the Magnolia Network series, Self-Employed. The show is streaming on the Magnolia app and Discovery Plus. Entrepreneur, Jonathan Morris travels the country to share the inspirational stories and new challenges of small business owners and their journeys to building their dream jobs. The show features entrepreneurs from a variety of backgrounds. And in Fort Worth, he owns a barbershop and a hotel. We're going to talk about all that. And, of course, the TV show Self-Employed. But we're also going to talk about building his dreams. Please welcome to Money Making Conversations for the very first time, Jonathan Morris. How you doing, Jonathan? I'm good, Rashad. How are you doing this morning? Good. So, uh, so you know, got Fort Worth right there, man. L- logo uh, on your shirt. It's on my <laughs> chest, man. I, I wear Fort Worth on my heart, man. I love this. I love this city. I love everything. Uh, I love most things about it. It's a, it's a, it's a growing city. A lot right. of people don't know we're the, mm-hmm. we're the twelfth largest city in the nation now. Wow. Wow. Quietly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that I did not know. If you yeah. give me your perspective, like I'm from Houston, Texas. You go up I-45 yeah. North. You know, you got Fort Worth and Dallas. You know, so Dallas is always the dominant market. You have Arlington, Fort Worth, Dallas. And so now he's telling me now Fort Worth is the twelfth largest city. Now that's news to me. Now everybody knows. Every everybody knows our our, our big brother. Uh, our big brother to the to the East Dallas, uh, mm-hmm. but Fort Worth, we're we're a little maybe a little more understated, a little, a little quieter, <laughs> uh-huh. but we're, we're doing our thing out here. There's a lot of lot of lot of good things happening in the city. Now you know you're you're. Well, I brought you on the show to talk about this new show on Magnolia Network uh, called Self Employed. Set us up a little bit about what exactly that show is, because of the fact that you are a barbershop owner. I believe you've been you had that shop for about six years, correct? Yeah, yeah, coming up on seven years. Coming seven up on seven years. years. Yeah. And, and so I'm very familiar with that range because my brother, my younger brother, he's in the D.C. area. He has four. And so uh, so when the COVID hit, you know, it really, you know, we was just talking about him opening because he couldn't open because he was face-to-face, a service-oriented business. And now you, that was like five going into your sixth year. Talk about yeah. when, how COVID impacted your business and how did you recover from it? Yeah, you know, it, you know, in March of 2020, um, as the rest of the world was experiencing um, what this new uh, um, this new hurdle that we were all facing together um, was was hitting us, the barbershop industry was one that was especially hit. Our business, like you said, we are literally face to face, and you know, inches away from folks' face. So when mm-hmm. it comes to congregating, it was a no go. So 
um, you know, the, the, the toughest thing, Rashawn, for, for, for me as a business owner was the uncertainty um, in, in dealing with it, not knowing, you know, once we closed, not knowing when we'd be able to open right. up. And, mm-hmm. you know, as, a, as an employer um, and having to go to my team um, of, 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 of barbers and stylists who, you know, this is their livelihood, going to them and saying, hey, guys, not only um, do I not have a job for you in this moment, mm-hmm. I also don't know when um, I'm going to. Uh, but if you hang on, you know, luckily for us, you know, being a small team, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's like a, it's like a little, little family, right. you know? <laughs> um, and we had to check in on each other and we had to make sure we we're doing okay. Right. We went, we went two months, mm-hmm. um, completely closed, um, until opening back up in May. And when we opened back up, we opened up with a lot of safeguards, right? We right. wanted to, um, make sure that as we were inviting people back into the space, um, we were doing so as respectful as responsibly right. um, as possible to, right. to to create a safe environment for our for our, for our customers, but then also our our, our staff. And so uh, the community re- responded really well. A lot of them came back to us, um, um, and you know we we we've been able to to bounce back, but we're still you know very much um, in this tricky space as as small businesses, particularly ones that are dealing face-to-face with the public. Well, you know, I'm uh, talking to Jonathan Morris. He has a barbershop and a hotel. We're going to talk about that in a minute in the Fort Worth area, Fort Worth, Texas, as he calls it. Uh, he's an entrepreneur and host of the new series on Magnolia app and uh, Discovery Plus series called Self-Employed. Now, I, I bring up these different conversations because everybody has a different role, or a different impact with COVID. Like, I would tell you something, Jonathan, I didn't know what to do, you know, and so when you were servicing customers, that closed. It had to be a little fearful, but you had to move past the fear to run your business or to operate your business carefully and uh, safely. Yeah, and I think that for us, that was that was rooted in how we communicated with our with our clients and even how we communicated with our staff. Mm-hmm. Um, that you know, hey, we we're we're lucky to be be open again. We're lucky we're we're we're, we're lucky to be able to provide a service to our community but mm-hmm. at the same time we understand that people are apprehensive right um and we you know in a lot of ways wanted to hold their hand through that and communicate with them that you know we, we want to create as safe a, a environment as we possibly could given the circumstances of a global pandemic you know? <laughs> yeah, the there was no there was no there was no book written on how to how to go about it right well, that, so that's the sad to- part because like i said i didn't know how to open the door i didn't know how to pump gas i didn't know how to say hello to people in public it was just really uh really a, a, a life yeah. of isolation and then you're a people yeah. person i can tell you your personality you such you're so engaging which is probably one of the reasons you're the host of the new series how did they come about the whole self-employed give everybody a sense of i gave a you know, my cliff note of what self-employed is. Yeah. Well, tell yeah, us what so, that is and how you became the host. Yeah, sure. So, you know, Rashawn, I, 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 I never set out to host a television show. One day back in 20, I guess it was 2019, I got a, I got a, a phone call from a good friend of mine who owns a video production company here in Fort Worth. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said, Hey, I've been meeting with the Magnolia people and we kind of pitched them on an idea of a TV show. Um, they like, what you're doing with your barbershop in Fort Worth. Um, and we, um, we started that discussion of what, a, what, what this TV show could be, what it could look like. And of course, you know, I told them, I say, listen, I'm not an actor. I'm just an entrepreneur. 
Um, and, and, and I love engaging with other entrepreneurs and learning about their stories. And I find myself to be particularly inspired by other entrepreneurs and people who are following their dreams, writing, writing, writing their, writing their own story, as, as you said. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, uh, we crafted this show where I go around the country and I meet with people uh, across different backgrounds who, who, who landed into entrepreneurship and becoming self-employed from all, all walks of life um, who are running, you know, all different sized businesses. Right. Um, so we travel around the country and, and we, we sit down with them and talk to them and learn their you, stories. You know, your personality really helps the series. Okay. You know, you're meeting different people, but you engage and you, 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 you have a welcoming personality, Jonathan. And I think that really helps the series. Well, and, you know, you know, Rashad, like I'm just curious, you know, mm-hmm. and when I'm sitting down and talking with these, these entrepreneurs, you know, in a lot of ways, I can empathize with a lot of the things they've been going through. Right. Um, and so, you know, so long as they allow me to just uh, be myself uh, and ask the questions that I would want to <laughs> ask, you know, ask folks, even if the cameras weren't even rolling. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I think that that's what has made the show fun. And, you know, people um, have been really inspired by it. And I hope that more people see um, the, the people that we're, we're featuring on the show. And, you know, they 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 take the leap to, to pursue right. their own dreams and. Um, even if it, even if they're not entrepreneurs, right. we hope that this this show really helps people to know that like, even supporting entrepreneurs, supporting small businesses, um, we can all play a part in, in what that looks like in our communities. Well, the interesting thing about it, because you know, you know, you're an entrepreneur, you know, you're a marketer, and social media. Now you're on, you're not, you know, you was, you you look, you was a star. You started Fort Worth, Texas area. Now mm-hmm. now you're on a TV show. You're on the app, Magnolia, Groin. The Disney Discovery Plus, they, you see a commercial on it every time you turn on TV. And so now you're getting into the social media aspect. What has changed about this newfound fame? And it's going to grow because the more the show gets popular, the more people download the show and watch the show. How has it allowed you to, like, work on your brand or grow your brand outside of the television show? You know, as a as a small business owner, you know, you know, I'm, I've been in over the, over the last three years in the middle of, you know, working on this show, I've been working on my new business, which uh-huh. is this small, this 21 room hotel in Fort Worth. And so, you know, the more, uh, the, the, the more platform, more opportunity that I have to, to tell people about, um, to talk about entrepreneurship, uh-huh. I hope that it helps to feed, you know, uh, my little baby, my, my, <laughs> my new business as we're, you know, venturing into this, 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 this new, you know, for me, um, untraveled territory. And right. so, um, the more people that, that, that we can reach and we can speak to and um, share share this idea of, of, of what a uh, you know in, in, in this in this in, in this regard what a hotel can be in Fort Worth, Texas. Um, the well, better, let's let's slide know? over to that hotel because uh, yeah. you know you have a, a locally owned boutique hotel and bar in Fort Worth. It's cultural district, and yeah. you know. It's a lot of things I've done in my life. I thought about doing a restaurant. I've thought about, you know, I've thought, of course, I was a performing comedian, acting, just a modeling, a, a managed talent. But a hotel, that I only stay in hotels, Jonathan. <laughs> the fact that you made the, the leap to want to be a, a owner of a hotel, and it's a boutique hotel with a bar, talk about that. Yeah, so, you know, the, the idea of a, a hotel for me came from, you know, traveling. Yes. And when I travel, I like to connect with the city. I like to connect with where I am. I want to be um, in, in, a, in a place that gives me a true sense of a place. Right. 
Um, and as I looked around Fort Worth, the city that I love, the city that my father, my grandfather, my grandmother, my mom was called home for a very long time. And this place where I've, you know, ventured into entrepreneurship, I look around and I don't see that place. I did not see that place. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I said, you know, I want to create this space that authentically, um, says something about this, 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 this little big town. Right. Um, and, and does it, you know, in a way that, that I would do, I've, I've, I've stayed in a lot of hotels, <laughs> um, but I never, never owned one. Right. And so, um, you know, I ran into, I was, I was out, I ran into a good friend of mine and this is back in 2018, summer 2018, just right. three years ago. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we were just catching up on our businesses and what's going on. And I said, Alan, I said, I really want to do a hotel. And so we started that conversation. Mm -hmm. um, and now uh, Alan's my business partner in this project. And we, you know, we had to, we had to find a location. We right. had to find uh, the, the, the funding. We had right. to, uh, you know, really put together what this, what this could be. And so over the last three years, that's what we've been doing. Hotel Drice um, is a 21 room uh, <laughs> hotel with a, a lobby bar uh, that sits in the cultural district right across the street from the new uh, 14,000 seat Dickies arena, right. uh, which is bringing, you know, droves of people into the city. And so, uh, <laughs> we just want to be able to be a space. We can serve people who are coming to the city as well as, uh, being a, uh, honestly a cultural hub for, for locals as well. Okay. So you, you're, you're, uh, so 21 rooms. Okay. Mm -hmm. So it is, it's a different atmosphere. So how, how, how big are the rooms, the room spaces? You have like suites, yeah. you have like all of the same size rooms, they double beds, yeah. the Kings, what are they? Sure. So we have five different size rooms at the hotel. We have one suite. We have one, one suite, <laughs> uh, the, 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 the presidential, if you, if you will, uh, that has a living space. And that was, we're around like 500 square feet on that. Mm -hmm. And then we have um, smaller suites all the way down to like 200, mm -hmm. 200 square feet. Mm -hmm. um, so different price ranges, different uh, views of the city, right. uh, but really comfortable spaces. We wanted to create something that uh, was not necessarily high luxury, but was, you know, had a utilitarian, but a cool, comfortable, welcoming feel on um, to, to, uh, uh, attract traveler, the traveler that we felt like was coming to Fort Worth, right. but wasn't able to find, uh, the, the independent boutique, uh, hotel kind of a feel. Well, you know, the interesting thing I'm talking to Jonathan Morris, he's the host of self-employed on the Magnolia app. That's what you can find. And also on discovery plus uh, streaming network. Uh, the reason I was just talk about is entrepreneurship. Cause you know, if you're going to host a show called self-employed, you should know something. Okay. <laughs> he knows the, and one thing he does know is the people business. You know, he's in the, he's a barbershop owner, hotel owner. If those are two businesses, you better know some people and be, and also be service oriented. Now, right. when, he, when he, when he talks about a hotel drice, it reminds me of a New York hotel. And so, because if you, if you go to New York, see, it wasn't the size that he said freaked me out. He said 500 square feet to 200 square feet. Okay, cool. I've been in the 200 square feet. You open that door, that's the bed. And guess what? That, that you are you are the TV right there. Oh, you, you no. lay, lay in the bed, TV right there, bathroom right there. You know, no. you are in that bed, not to you're in that 200 square foot room, not to entertain, but to go to sleep. That's why I rented them. You go in there after a long night, you put your, your hang up over the everything. And the thing about those rooms, they're so I'm gonna use the word cute. From a standpoint of everything's right there. Am I, am I telling the truth, Jonathan? You know, I like to use the word concise. Okay. <laughs> Efficient, practical, right? Right, right, we, right. 
<laughs> because That's what we want to do. We want to create a space that, you know, you have everything you need, uh, right. is affordable. Right. Um, and, and ultimately, what we want to do is we want to get people out into our city. We want to get people um, absolutely, absolutely, to we absolutely. get them in our city to discover what Fort Worth has to offer. Because that's why I wanted to stop people. Because you know, people hear a number. 200 square feet. That's, well, look, I'm just telling you something. Rashawn <laughs> McDonald has stayed in many 200 square foot rooms. <laughs> now, when you go in, that's why I'm just preparing everybody. When you go in there, when you open the door, you will see the bed. You will see the dresser. <laughs> you will see the TV. You will see the restroom door. But it's all good. Like you said, it's convenient. It's like staying in a cruise ship room. If you've been in the cruise ship, but it's bigger and it's nice. Without the waves. Without the waves. Without the waves. You can walk out and you can go about your business. But the beauty of that, the establishing that is that its personality is in the cultural district of Fort Worth, which means it's tied to personality. And so if you go to places like New York, you go to Chicago, you go to go to San Francisco especially, you know, and you'll find those type of hotels when you walk down the streets. I can I can I can clearly see a hotel properties like that in New York because I lived there so many years and it was always fun what has been the most dynamic or most interesting part of developing that type of hotel property in the fort worth area john sure, you know Rashawn, for me um it's been how much of the local community we've been able to impart in the design and development of the, of the space mm-hmm. um within the hotel every room that you walk into you're going to see art from local artists mm-hmm. um and if i'm being even more if we're more transparent, right. there are people that I call friends who are um, influencing uh, the city through their talent, through their creativity, uh, whether it be uh, the, the photography on the walls right. or sculpture that we have, sculptures we have, um, or paintings, or uh, even down to the, the, the bed frame and the desk or local carpenters, people that uh, you might mess around and see at the at the lobby bar downstairs right. um, after you check in. You know, right. it is um, very much um, Fort Worth through and through, and it was just a way for us to express who we are um, as a city and 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 and, and as uh, uh, as as the people that, right. that, that live here. Absolutely, the the beauty of being an entrepreneur, which is self employed, is about you know we all have these American dreams. But we also go out there. Does your show? Because I've seen a couple of episodes, but I haven't seen the entire series. Is it a is it a show that you learn from, or do you, a show you see missteps and people overcoming missteps? Talk about the series, the, the granular nature of the series. Because you, I can, I'm a I'm a I'm an entrepreneur, so I know I've made mistakes. It will make future mistakes because yeah. it's a lot of things you do on gut, you do on instinct, you do on. You hear the word faith. A lot of people go out there on faith, saying they don't want to work a normal job every anymore. If I'm gonna put in eighty hours, I'm gonna put why not put eighty hours into my dream. Yeah. And you hear that a lot out there on your show, Self-Employed. Talk about how you manage expectations, but also to show the upside of the show and not making it a show where you show the dark side of it. You know, I I think that if there's one thing that uh, I've learned and I hope people take away from watching the show is that every single one of uh, these entrepreneurs that we're following has had to face some level of risk, some more than others. Right. But everyone... Um, to some degree, is stepping out on faith. Um, every single one of these entrepreneurs has hit roadblocks, right. has hit obstacles, has hit um, uh, uh, parts of their, their their journey that, for a lot of people, would be enough to say, you know what, that's okay with me. I'll go ahead and just take a W two, and somebody else can, uh, 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 can, can can worry about running this this show, right? Yeah, yes, um, yes. But they persevered through those things. 
And the other thing that, you know, every one of these entrepreneurs that we, that we've, that we've, um, we featured, they're all still in the learning process. Yes. Nobody has got all the answers. And I think that that is a way that really humanizes um, the, the, the small business or the, or the, or the entrepreneurial journey for people. And I hope that people are able to see themselves um, in people, right. They're able to right. identify that, Hey, this, this is just a person just like me right. um, who was able to uh, step out there on faith um, and, and, and bring their dreams to life. Here's the interesting thing to Jonathan, because I'm gonna read a quote from an article that you had, you know, we'll learn about their stories about self-employed. We'll learn about their stories and learn about where they have been, where they are right now, what the challenges are and understanding how they've had to adapt and pivot, which is important yep. because we all pivoted during the COVID around <laughs> this. It's an opportunity to shed light on what it looks like for someone to take that idea and cultivate that idea into their dream in a dream work life of being self-employed. I, I, I wish I wanted to say that quote, first of all, a pretty profound quote, and I'm glad I had an opportunity to read it during our interview, is that I look at myself and, and, and like you said, some people are just W2 people, which means they will, they will work a 40 hour week job. And I know that the younger generation, the millennial generation was really hitting, hit hard. Everybody was talking about they don't want to, they want to skip steps, you know, they don't want to work a 40 hour week job. But because of technology, have you seen the, an age difference out there when you've done your show? Is it, or is just, you just been just out there and everybody wants to be successful? Because I know as, as entrepreneurs, the, the female industry or the women have really become a dominant voice as entrepreneurs. Yeah. And also blacks have stepped up their game as entrepreneurs. Tell us what you're seeing out there while you're doing the show. I know you're not the expert. You Five years from now, we can have this different conversation because you have been yeah. everywhere all over this country. Yeah. But talk about what you're seeing now. Well, um, one of the things that I wanted to make sure that we, we, we did before we, before we even started filming is I want to show a diverse range right. of entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. And so we talked to, to some, some younger folks uh, that are in the, in the earlier stages of their entrepreneurial journey. And we've talked to, we talked to some folks that are a little bit older and they've been doing it for a while. Mm -hmm. um, and, I, and again, I just hope that, again, people are able to like, see themselves and identify with that, but I do think that um, particularly um, demographics that are underrepresented in the entrepreneurial space um, can see themselves, whether that be women, whether that be people of color, um, being able to see themselves represented, I think is huge. And I'm just, I'm just glad we were able to, to do that. We've talked to all sorts of people, from right. all, all right. ethnicities, mm -hmm. Um, parts of the country. And, and that, that to me was really important, but I do think that, you know, over these next few years, and I think that the pandemic is one of the things that's going to be a, a, a will have been a, a catalyst for it is more and more people um, stepping out and, and, and pursuing uh, their dreams, taking those, those, those dreams from ideas to, to reality. And that's through technology. Technology has been a different game changer for so many people to pursue their dreams. But also the reality is that the, pandemic has made everybody see that there is a finite opportunity. There's a window. If you don't take that window, if you're not happy with the window you're looking through, then you can change it. And you can change it by putting forth a plan, rules in place, and winning with that. What is your bigger takeaway? Because the, the beauty of me, and I, I want to maintain a friendship with you, Jonathan, and because of the fact that 
you are so engaging, and and you 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 say natural stories that a lot of people don't understand. Like you said, well, in 2018, you know, I said I want to I want to be in the hotel business, you know. In 2019, I get a phone call. They say, hey man, we got this idea. We want to pitch. None of this is like. You know, he's one of these guys who walks through, he sees an opportunity, he grabs it, and he matures it. And that's what being an entrepreneur is. And I want to let, let everybody know that's why he's an excellent host. Because he goes through life, but he's a planner. And he's not afraid of, di- as they say, multiple streams of income or diversifying his portfolio. Because some people say, I'm in the restaurant business, that's all I'm going to do. Now you're in the barbershop business, you're in the hotel business, now you're on TV as a host. What drives that level of confidence to diversify and trust your talents? A couple things. Number one, one thing I do a lot is, this is just for me, I write down ideas <laughs> every day. Some of them are good ones, some of them are bad ones, some of them will see the light of day, some of them will be uh, balled up and, and thrown in the trash, right? right. And, and but uh, and that's that's just that's just kind of that's what I do. That's my 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 method that works that that works for me. Writing down ideas, um, writing down those dreams before they even become you know a a, a, a fleshed out plan. Mm-hmm. But also, Richard, I think you know understanding and, and recognizing what opportunity looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that a lot of times I hear uh, folks you know when they think about opportunity. Only thing, the only opportunity they look for is one that look like a, a paycheck a connect connected to it, right? <laughs> yes, yes. And a lot of times, that that thing that opens up the next door to the next door to the to the Big paycheck or to the to, the, to, the, to, the, to that, that that money making conversation, right? Yes, uh, sometimes it don't always got dollars attached to it, but I think that you know building relationships, even just like you just said, you know that phone call that I got from a friend about a TV show that he was gonna. That was a relationship that yes, we had yeah. fostered for years. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, running to what is now my business partner mm-hmm. um, in the hotel in the hotel project mm-hmm. that brings a completely different skill set right. to the to the table than than I do. Mm-hmm. That was a re- that was relationship building um, over years, way before the thing that was the thing that the <laughs> thing that people see, you know, came you know came to fruition, and so. You know, I, 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 I'm a big believer in, in, in fostering and, and, and leaning into relationships. Um, you know, I am not an expert in just about anything, but um, I, I think that I have a hunger for knowledge and it's a natural curiosity. Right. Um, and a lot of times, you know, for me, when, when I see that somebody else has done something, I kind of think to myself, well, I could I could do that, too. Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. Um, and so. Sometimes it, just, it means finding the right people to connect with, to, um, to, 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 to put yourself in the right position for the opportunity that leads to the opportunity that leads to the opportunity. <laughs> I love it. Well, I would tell you this, brother. Uh, Magnolia Network and uh, Discovery Plus has found the right host for the TV series uh-huh. Self-Employed. Uh, if you're ever in the Fort Worth, Texas area, you know, the 12th largest city in, the, in America, stop by and say, hey, get you a nice cut, find you a nice bed. <laughs> Next time I talk to him, he probably say, come over here and eat at my restaurant. <laughs> he going to get the trifecta for you. He going to make you look good. He going to feed you, and he going to put you to sleep. Jonathan, there we go. <laughs> thank you, man. Thank you, brother, for coming on my show, Money Making Conversation, Jonathan. Thank you, Rashad. I appreciate it. We will be right back with more Money Making Conversation with Rashawn McDonald. 
You are now tuned into the Money Making Conversations, Minute of Inspiration with Rashawn McDonald. Hi, I'm Rashawn McDonald for Money Making Conversations with your daily Minute of Inspiration. This week, I sat down with activist and founder of Legal Equalizer, Inc., Mbajai. After having many dehumanizing encounters with the police, Mbai decided to create a mobile app that allows users to record police encounters, provide information on legal rights involving that encounter, and receive legal advice at the scene while being pulled over. So when I started the app, it wasn't even to start a business. It wasn't to make money. It wasn't anything more so than, hey, if I get pulled over, I want my mom. I wanted my girlfriend at the time to know where I was. I wanted to know my best friends to know where I was. And I wanted a video if anything happened so people could not argue about, hey, what did you do wrong? So that, that's what got the impetus to start thinking about creating something to start protecting people when they got stopped. If you want to listen to this full interview with M. By Jai, it's available on moneymakingconversations.com. Now let's return to Money Making Conversation with Rashawn McDonald. My next guest is Kamal Murray. He is the founder and CEO of XS Tennis, the tennis channel commentator as well. If you watch the tennis channel as much as I watch, we're going to get into why I watch it so much. And a professional tennis coach, which is really key because uh, the most proud thing I like to talk about is he's an HBCU grad. He's an alum. He's out there. And HBCUs are getting so much notoriety nowadays. And it's great to see that we're not just... uh, because a lot of people look at HBCUs and they have a perception about the band, the halftime, the, and all the sports. It's really bigger than that. And we're going to talk about his experience and his proud background and relationship that he has with, with, with HBCUs. But he's the producer of the first professional tournament, ter- tennis tournament produced by an African-American, XS Tennis Village in Washington Park. It's a 16.9 million dollar black-owned and operated tennis facility. It is one of the largest indoor and outdoor tennis facilities in the United States. Murray received a tennis scholarship, like I said earlier, Florida A&M, uh, procedurally known as FAMU, uh, where he also served as a graduate assistant coach. The HBCU graduate is only the third African-American coach to, approach, to coach a Grand Slam champion. We turn the show to talk about his programs, uh, what, he's, what his future is going to be like, about the, the state of tennis, not only for African-Americans, but just tennis in general. This weekend at the U.S. Open, we saw it got really young, but we also saw a lot of great talent that, is, like when we talk about Coco Golf, Sloan Stevens, so a person he coached in the he's coached. So welcome to Money Making Conversation. I'm gonna call him a friend because uh, he knows a lot of people I know. <laughs> Kamal <laughs> Murray, welcome to the show, Kamal. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. Well, you know, man, uh, you know, tennis, you know, when you talk about black people with tennis, you know, you go all the way back to Arthur Ashe. And if you go even further, it's Althea Gibson. And it continued, then the Williams sisters have dominated it. And it's kind of made like uh, the, the blacks have really started populating the game. But really, it still is a game where blacks are still trying to find their way on the tennis court. Am I right in making that assessment, that, that, that statement? Yeah, I mean, we don't have the generational lineage Mm -hmm. uh, that, you know, white people do. Right. You know, I think that, you know, a lot of a lot of the reasons why some of these kids make it is their parents played in college and their parents' parents played in college. So, you know, after it it is a total trial and error game in terms Mm -hmm. of trying to make a professional tennis player and very few parents get it right the first time. Right. And so the kid that doesn't make it right, whose parents groomed them. Their mm-hmm. kids perhaps might make it because now they don't have to search around. They know, hey, you, at this age, you go to this person. At this age, you go to this person. Right. Then you go play this tournament. So, you know, the, the, you know, white, you know, white people have more 
uh, lineage in the game because they've just been doing it long. You know, back in the day, right? Uh, you know, black people and Jewish people were not allowed to join tennis clubs. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, Jewish people had the, the wherewithal to create their own tennis clubs. So you have clubs like York Rackets in Toronto mm-hmm. or Hillcrest out in L.A., mm-hmm. but black people did not have that same opportunity. You know, we mm-hmm. may have taken over a park and called it a club, but mm-hmm. it was just a park and no indoor opportunity. So I think that we're playing catch up as it relates to, um, you know, black tennis players who may have played in college now having kids Mm -hmm. and now knowing the role. And so once we start, uh, once those kids kind of come of age, we'll see, we'll see the landscape of tennis be a lot more colorful. You know, my daughter, you know, who I love her to death, you know, she started, she picked up a racket when she was six years old. And so basically played it till she was uh, 19 years of age and she blew out her knee ACL injury. And I, I saw that process. That process is a, you know, it's a very, um, I want to say it's a, it's, a, it's, it's, you know, you're out there with a coach a lot. It's a, you get up a lot of your personal life to be, what is it when you look at it? Cause you did the same thing. This is your story too. Cause you know, the amount of time you have to put in on that court. And sometimes the social life is not going to be part of that, but you are blessed. I would say, because you got to go to college. A lot of these kids don't go to college. And so life kind of stops for them from an entertainment perspective on the tour. That's their world. And so talk about, you as a youngster getting into tennis and how important it was for you to gain some type of social behavior when you went to FAMU. Yeah, you know, I think that the individual nature of the sport causes tennis players to be a little bit behind socially. Yes. Not as comfortable being around people, spend a lot more time in isolation or just in the car with their parent, Mm -hmm. driving, you know, to and from the tennis court for hours. And so... I mean, it is a fact that tennis players are are developed slower mm-hmm. on the social aspect compared to, you know, basketball, football players who spend so much time with each other. Right. Um, but, I, you know, I, I think that, you know, obviously having an opportunity to go to college, um, you know, allowed me to definitely gain some social skills. But it all goes with the cost. You know, I didn't want to play pro tennis. You know, um, mm-hmm. I would not say that if I had the opportunity to play pro tennis at 17 years old, that going to college just to get socialized mm-hmm. would have been a good thing. Mm-hmm. I would have gone and taken that opportunity. I didn't really want to play pro tennis. Uh, wasn't good enough. Wasn't interested. Didn't have the lineage or the know-how. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think that having been a good tennis player uh, and been very cerebral and and, pre- and mentally present during the entire process, when you combine that with my HBCU experience and going to college, getting educated, getting a master's degree, getting socialized, mm-hmm. that did allow me to enter the, the professional tennis orbit, right. right? I mean, it is like the, the, the most closest-knit club you can have. <laughs> yes, it is. Um, it allowed me to enter it with a sense of confidence. Um, you know, so that I would say it was definitely going to college, Having had the experience uh-huh. uh, of being a good player, help me. Well, you, now, you know, me now you kind of come out. You kind of like you, you know. You say I wouldn't. I, I didn't want to do a pro. I didn't have the skill set for be a pro. But then you got a scholarship, so somebody saw some talent in you, you know, and it, and it took you to a, the state of Florida. And so, but how did you get come out? How did you get involved with tennis? How did what age did you start? And who? Why did it become a love for you? Because it is what you do now. It's a passion. Yeah, so I would say it wasn't necessarily a love all the time. You know, right. I my my brother, my older brother played, you know, big time basketball. He's like 6'9, 260 now. But he uh 
my parents took his as his AAU team to Africa. Uh-huh. Uh, and we came back in the middle of the summer and all the tennis camps, all the tennis camps were closed. Uh-huh. Uh, all the camps are closed in my neighborhood. And the only camp that was still accepting uh, enrollment was a tennis camp because right. they basically had three people enrolled in it because nobody in my neighborhood wanted to play tennis. <laughs> right. Uh, and so, you know, I, I stumbled upon a game. My godfather, Reggie Williams, was a tennis player. And he said, hey, you need somewhere to babysit Kamal. Go ahead and take him to Jesse Owens Park on 87th and Jeffrey. Right. And my mom took me there, really just hoping to be able to drop me off and get some cheap babysitting. Right. Um, you know, so it's, it just, uh, it just happened that way. And then, you know, even then I, you know, didn't love it. You know, right. I was leaving my tennis racket in the garbage can at the courts yeah, because I was my afraid daughter. to ride transportation. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so I, I, I it was, a, it was like a walk of shame almost home mm-hmm. right. from the mm-hmm. tennis court yeah. for a long time until right. I started to get decent. Mm-hmm. I had some success and had a sense of pride for myself. Now, it's, it's so funny because, uh, you know, you're right about, you know, socially, you know, you are behind your skill set. I always tell, I tell my wife, don't worry, she's going to eventually catch up. I said, once she goes to college and starts mingling with people, because you're out there by yourself from a standpoint. But what you do get, you do, you, you mature faster from a standpoint, if that's what you want. You have to work hard for it. You have to be disciplined. You have to arrive at a certain time. You have to put in a certain amount of hours. So it does prepare you for life. So when you open your tennis village you like you said you know everybody's not going to be a venus williams or serena williams or or anybody else who has a high skill level to turn pro what is the purpose of opening up your tennis academy or the xx tennis village so you know when i was growing up after that summer where i started playing tennis Mm -hmm. i found a free program at the high park racquetball club right and um you know, in that environment, that was like the black mecca of tennis in Chicago. Right. It was the only black tennis club in Chicago. It was black professionals, doctors, lawyers. Um, it was, you know, when Arthur Ashe came to town, he always stopped by there. That's where I met first met Zena Garrison. Like, mm-hmm. it was the place. Uh, Katrina Adams learned to play there. Donald Young. So it was like a black mecca. And I went there every day after school just for the free tennis program and the convenient babysitting for my mother. Um but that environment where you see black people uh, just sort of there congregating around the game, tennis, basketball, in the gym, drinking smoothies and wine, you know, I think, <laughs> yeah. you know that helped me as a student. That kept me off the street, right? right? And, you know, I can't tell you the number of times that I would be leaving out the club, walking to the bus stop to try to get a ride, you know, to, to take the bus home, and, a, and, a, and an adult would give me a ride in his Cadillac, you know what I mean? And so that environment where... It was um, wasn't forced mentorship, but it was just a the kids in here belong to us. We're going to make sure we practice with them, spar with them, uh, help them with their homework. I used to sit down on my knees and do my homework on the bench. Right. Right. And an adult would come over. Hey, what you doing? Let me help you with that math problem, whatever it is. Right. And it was totally authentic and and not forced. And so uh, my goal was to create that same environment. So we built the facility literally a mile west of that facility. Um, we've got classrooms so the kids don't have to s- sit on their knees and mm-hmm. do homework on the floor. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got adults in the building who have wherewithal, who have the opportunity to, you know, you know, very just unintendedly, you know, meet with kids and get to know these kids so that when they do grow older and get an intern, you know, need an internship, they have some sort of, you know, barometer there. So, 
that was the goal, was just to recreate the environment that I think kept me alive. I mean, I grew up uh, on the south side of Chicago. Right. Uh, and I had a lot of opportunity to do bad things. And I was a middle child in a middle class family in a middle class neighborhood. Right. And so I had the opportunity to do a lot of bad things. I could hide in my family because my brother was, you know, doing his thing on the basketball court. And, you know, my parents were busy. Both my parents worked, you know what I mean? And Mm -hmm. so tennis kept me on the straight and narrow, period, point blank. I mean, I, I knew and still know people who did you know, bad things. Right. You know what I mean? You know, that's basically what life is about, you know, being in the position where you got mentors, you got people who kept you straight. I always tell people about myself, you know, I I come from the inner city and, you know, people kept me, I'm, I'm sitting here because people guided me in the right direction. They kept me out of, uh, trouble. You know, some words. Some people might use the word mischief. You know, mischief can lead to trouble. And trouble can lead to incarceration, depending on what direction you take it. But you're sitting here today, a, a man who's making a difference in people's lives. You know, you serve nearly three thousand students annually uh, through your tennis your tennis program, and then you're sending kids to uh, to to college through scholarship programs. How does that make you feel? You know, because it, everything starts with a dream. Come out. You know, and I'm speaking mm-hmm. to Kamal Murray. He's the CEO of XS Tennis. You've seen him on the tennis channel as a commentator. But more importantly, he's a professional tennis coach. You know, you're making a difference. You're changing lives. I, I, I created this show, Money Making Conversation, to introduce people like you to view to my viewers and to my listeners to say, wow, you can do this too, but you have to have a plan. And your plan is changing lives. So when you wake up every day, how do you feel? Oh man, well let me tell you, it's hard work. So I mean, I feel <laughs> I'm glad that the building is built, and I'm glad that we're operating. We've been operating four years. We we started going in 2005, right? right. Then we mm-hmm. got our, old, our older facility. We got control of that in 2008, uh-huh. uh, and we moved in this building in 2017. But it was not easy. Uh, and so when I wake up in the morning, I'm exhausted. Uh, I'm very grateful that we were able to get to the finish line, but exhausted because the work never stops. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, around three or four o'clock when these kids start walking in, these parents start dropping their kids off and they are first generation tennis players with no knowledge and just a blank canvas. I mean, that makes it all worth it. Um, but, you know, I'll be, I'll be honest. You know, it was a lot of times in the process where I was like, I got a job. I got two degrees. I could do something else. Is it worth the fight? Right. You know, it shouldn't be this hard to do good. And so uh, it has not been like a um, a smooth road. But, you know. I feel like my South Side roots make make me uh, tough enough to power through it. So that that I, I'll be honest with you, it's it's uh, it, it's been a hard road, but it's good. It's very rewarding uh, to see this, you know, everything come to fruition, and for us to have professional tennis tournaments and stuff here. But you know, the the road was hard. I mean, I I tell you, you know, just I'm glad to see HBCUs getting the notoriety that they're getting now, right. because I would say, if I'm being honest, uh, a lot of when I was trying to raise money. Right. right. Amongst corporations and amongst the wealthy crowd who might have went to Ivy League schools or some of these, you know, larger institutions. Uh, I felt like on a consistent basis that my HBCU degree was a hindrance. Mm-hmm. For what I was trying to do. Right. It was like uh, you didn't go to Kellogg or Booth. Right. So your family MBA is not really an MBA. You know, mm-hmm. I, I had that feeling. Right. And it wasn't just my insecurity. Mm-hmm. It was a real feeling. You know right. what I mean? I think now. You know, supporting HBCUs, believing their potential is is a is a fad. 
But, you know, four years ago, it wasn't a fad. Right. Four years ago, it was I was sitting in a room with, with four or five people that went to Harvard, Yale, Dartmouth, Booth. Mm-hmm. You know, and so, mm-hmm. you know, it was it was uh, it, it, it made my life harder. Right. right. Um, just in terms of proving I had the capacity and the intellect to sort of make this happen. Well, you know, Kamal, I think from a standpoint, and you're absolutely correct. Like I always tell people that if Vice President uh, Kamala Harris didn't tell anybody she went to Howard, they would assume she went to Ivy League school. Because people just don't assume that type of academic training can lead to somebody being the vice president of the United States. But you also were playing in the lane where, you know, there was a rarity, you know, from the standpoint of tennis. You know, mm-hmm. you, you can't you don't associate tennis with a with a historically black college and university. You just don't do that. And so but you do you do from an academic standpoint, when you realize that 80 percent of the black doctors and dentists are who are black come from HBCUs, 40% of the members of Congress who are black come from HBCUs, 24% of the STEM graduates who are black come from HBCUs, you know, North Carolina A&T graduates, more black engineers, either white or black colleges, you know, that type of information is what I'm about. That's that's why I got you on the show, because important people see there are so many different styles because of the fact that, you know, it is limited amount of information when I see that Mackenzie Scott gives out $4.1 billion, but they don't tell you why she gave out the $4.1 million. And so when I bring you on the show to talk about you, I move the conversation of FAMU to the forefront because here's a man making a difference who should be recognized for his academic training, but also for his black excellence. And that's really one of the reasons I brought you on the show because now, because I want to talk about this tennis tournament that you're kicking off because it's the first ever and you're producing it. Yeah. Well, let me say this. When you think about uh, black college tennis, I went to FAMU mm-hmm. and I'm the third black person to coach a Grand Slam champ. Right. Sloan Stevens, I, right? Sloan Stevens. Walter Johnson was the first. He coached out the and Arthur. Mm-hmm. Richard Williams was the second. He coached Venus and Serena. Mm-hmm. And I'm the third. Mm-hmm. And I coached Sloan Stevens. Okay. So that's FAMU number one right there. Uh, Zach Evidon. Mm-hmm. was the only black coach on the men's pro tour. He was coaching Francis TFO. He also went to FAMU. Okay, wow. Okay, cool. Althea Gibson mm-hmm. went to FAMU. Mm-hmm. And so the blacks that are in tennis <laughs> also have a great history and a, and a relationship with FAMU, you know, with, with HBCUs. You Thank know what you. I mean? So I think that's also, you know, little known fact, but I think it's, it's important to know that, you know, two years ago, the only two black coaches and all the pro tennis both went to HBCU. Right. Uh, and so, you know, even my teammate, my teammate Noah Wadawu, coached Melanie Udan, who, mm-hmm. you know, if you Google her story years ago, she made this incredible run at the U.S. Open. So mm-hmm. I think that, um, you know, we, we've got to sort of um, promote it and talk about it more. But FAMU. Uh, and she was out of I mean, Atlanta, right? Wasn't Melanie out of Atlanta? Yeah, she was out of Atlanta. Absolutely. Exactly. I definitely but know. HBCU graduates and tennis players have had a, a, a big imprint on professional tennis for a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it just so happened that we're, we're very modest personalities. You know, Noel is very modest. I'm very well, leave modest that to me. Le- leave that shout out to me. That's my yeah. job. My job is to p- get you to talk about it, to be able to give you a platform to be able to shout it out. And then we should accept the responsibility that this is legitimate and we should support it. Because people, yeah. you know, you could say it was tough, but, you know, man, you know, six, six, $16.9 million black owned and operated tennis facility. You did a really good talker of people believing what you have to say and what you've accomplished. So I always say that sometimes we work so hard, Kamal, that we kind of forget that 
people believe in us, we don't sit back and look at all our success. And sometimes the grind can overwhelm you. And my saying is overwhelming you. Brother, look, you've coached mm-hmm. a Grand Slam tennis champion. And we all saw this weekend how tough that is. You know, Emma, who won this weekend at 18 years old, the previous Grand Slam, she had to walk away because the pressure was too great at the Wimbledon. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. you see how it affected uh, Novak Djokovic, you know, and afterwards he he said he was relieved. You know, every every game he played, Rob Laver was in the stands. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, well, what's up? Are you going to take it or you're not going to take it? You know what I'm saying? Then the skinny Russian come along and he can't even, every one of his serves was darn near an ace. And so, but, the, but that's that pressure. You know, you putting on a tennis tournament, that's another level of pressure and expectation. Talk about that. Yeah, so, um, I mean, you know, with COVID, um, there was an opportunity to add some tournaments to the calendar mm-hmm. uh, with the with the pros not going to Asia this year because of the pandemic. Uh, and so, you know, it was a good, you know, I made sure that, you know, just as I did in my corporate career uh, prior to 2017, or prior to 2015 when I left corporate America, you know, I made sure that when I'm at these events and at these tournaments that I network, continue to meet people, be a good person, um, you know, really uh, exemplify what it means to be a black man or HBCU grad who's right. educated, comes from a good family, mm-hmm. uh, and not just be seen as just a tennis coach. And so over that time, I've had to, you know, build some relationships, um, you know, in the C-suite, you know, with the tennis C-suite per mm-hmm. se. Uh, and then, you know, I've been working to just sort of bring things like that to Chicago because with excess tennis, it's a cradle-to-grave approach. You know, the cradle is obviously teaching the kids, and then the grave is being able to support professional tennis and, and, and like bring it to the inner city, you know, like, you know, the kids in this neighborhood don't have the opportunity to go to New York and watch us open. So right. my goal is to bring us open to them. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, that was always a part of the strategy, uh, and the vision. And this year we happen to, you know, be able to maneuver and negotiate to be able to pull it off. So it, it was great. I mean, and, and it, it really is. I mean, listen, what, what black promotion of black ownership in a tennis event means mm-hmm. is that you can have black suppliers. Right. When I go to tennis tournaments, there are no black suppliers. Right. The security firm that got the contract is white. The catering company got the contract is white. The transportation company got the contract is white. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when I go to U.S. Open, I walk 15 feet and my credential gets checked every five feet. Right. You know, and this, this is 2018, the year after Sloan won. I'm like, hey, guys, my face is on that billboard right there. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I am, I'm that guy. So let me buy. Right. And so I think that just comes from not having enough. Uh, enough black enough black bodies on the site, and right. so you know, being able to own this event really gives me the opportunity to a give out wild cars to up and coming black players, mm-hmm. and b uh, support black vendors. You know, mm-hmm. so we have black caterer, black security company, black graphic design, black printer, black PR, black marketing. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of the ball kids were African Americans, uh, and so um, you know, it, it just really, really gives an opportunity to sort of continue what, what the world is trying to do now, right? Which is support black people and expose uh, the world to black people. Because, you know, I would say about tennis, it's the ultimate melting pot. I mean, it is the globalist of games. And, um, you know, it, we've got to start to welcome everybody into the game, right? The Serbians, right. the Czech, the Russians, uh, the, the South Americans, the Canadians, I mean, all of us. We got a girl from Tunisia that's coming to town. So, you know, the, the, like the, the world needs early exposure to each other. Right. And this event allows that to right. happen. 
Well, you see that. You just see all the uh, mixed race winners and champions that are in tennis nowadays, from Canada, mm -hmm. from Japan. And, but again, with that whole thing, you know, I, I talked to a very humble man. Kamal Murray is a humble guy. You know, Excess Tennis Village is on 13 acres, y'all. Okay, I live on five acres. I know what 13 acres looks like, okay? 15 <laughs> outdoor courts, 12 indoor courts, okay? It's a fitness center, classroom. It's located primarily in a low-income area of Chicago. So when I talk to him, I look at him. I look him square in the eye and go, brother, you're special. You're doing something I know. Some people would consider impossible. God gave you a talent, put you in the right direction, and say, hey, man, your, your, your relatives say, pick up that racquetball. Your mom says she's going to keep you busy with babysitting duties. And then whether you say you didn't love it or not, there is a love for it. And, and yeah. you're making a difference because Sloan Stevens won't be Sloan Stevens without you. She's not a Grand right. Slam champion without you. And in, in the fact that you are affecting 3,000 students annually at your facility in Chicago makes a difference. The fact that you're sending young students to colleges on scholarship opportunities is, is impressive. And when you say all those things, and I'm not just trying to make you down in the dumps and say, hey, man, you need to thump your chest. I'm just saying, brother, you're special. And that's my job is to acknowledge that and to get you to understand that you're a valued member of this world. Thank you, brother. I appreciate you. I appreciate you having me on. I mean, you know, look, I've got tons of people in my life that provide me encouragement. And when I start slowing down, yes. they kick me right in the butt and say, keep on going, boy. You know, Zeke Garrison's one of those people. Billy Jean's one of those people. Uh, brother named Les Coney, you know, because it, it gets hard. So I appreciate what you just said. Uh, I appreciate the encouragement, um, and uh, hey, kudos to you too, man. Thank you for, for having me on and, and supporting what I'm trying to do. Yeah, I'm going to talk to my boy Stephen A. Smith. We're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna get, we're, I'm going to connect you with him, man. After this interview, I got to do some extra for you too, man, because you're special, bro. <laughs> okay? <laughs> yeah. Cool. Uh, and Stephen A. would appreciate it. You know, I think, you know, one of the things about this facility, it was it was created with a lot of help from NBA players. So mm -hmm. uh, my best friend in high school and still to this day is a guy named Quentin Richardson. Uh, I know Quentin. Yeah, Q. Uh, yeah, Q. Phoenix Suns. Yeah, Phoenix Suns, yep, from Chicago. And then mm -hmm. Wayne Wade and Bobby Simmons. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a lot of people sort of, uh, you know, help this facility come here, whether it's like, hey, give me some game tickets so I can entertain this person. Uh -huh. Or, hey, I need a check. Right. I know you got it. I, I, you got the Mercedes. I need a check. So, right, right. Um, you know, there's a lot of basketball influence uh, in this in this facility as well, because in Chicago, in addition to the business community, there's a lot of athletes. Right. You know, that way make it make it from the south and west side. Now, who are some of those athletes, athletes, NBA athletes that you just mentioned? I kind of didn't hear them all. Oh, yeah, Quentin Richardson, Dwayne Wade, Bobby. Um, you know, they all kind of stepped up road checks to support uh -huh. the cause still involved, still supportive, uh, working on phase two and three with those guys. So, uh, um, you know, a Keon Dooling's daughter mm -hmm. uh, trains here. You know, he's the coach of the Utah Jazz. His Absolutely. daughter actually lived, mm -hmm. lived with me this summer. Um, he was Q's teammate back in the day. So, you know, a lot of a lot of help from a lot of different sources. Well, my man, you keep winning. And again, uh, I'm going to help promote this and uh, keep you in the forefront of uh, black excellence, my brother. And uh, again, you're making a difference. And uh, I, I can't, uh, if you ever need a kick in the butt, just, just uh, ask Bobby. Bob, I know Bobby. I, 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 when you said Bobby, I, he's just laying on, he's in LA. When I was in LA, we were still on the same floor. 
same condo. So uh, he, okay. I know him very well, man, and uh, I know his brother, and I know exactly that Chicago world that he. Uh, we talked about a, but last year we talked about uh, on the phone doing an interview, and uh, so I really appreciate you, man, coming on Money Making Conversation just to tell your story and kick you in the butt. Okay. Right. right. <laughs> I appreciate you having me, brother. Oh, thank you. If you want to hear any of my interviews on Money Making Conversation or. He or see my interviews on Money Making Conversation. Please go to moneymakingconversation.com. I am Rashawn McDonald. I am your host. You've been listening to Money Making Conversations with Rashawn McDonald. Please join us next week. And always remember, lead with your gifts. Money Making Conversations is a presentation of 3815 Media Incorporated. You are now tuned into the Money Making Conversations Minute of Inspiration with Rashawn McDonald. Hi, I'm Rashawn McDonald from Money Making Conversations with your daily Minute of Inspiration. Now, before there was Oprah, before there was Arsenio Hall, there was Mr. Soul. This week I sat down with Melissa Haslip, the producer, director, writer on the award-winning documentary film about the first black late-night talk show on PBS. The media started with Soul Train, and it's important to recognize that Soul was a television show, as you mentioned, that was on PBS nationwide from 1968 to 1973. And that those were really critical moments in which we were trying to reimagine ourselves on this cultural landscape and this American landscape and on the heels of the civil rights movement, Jim Crow, segregation, so much. If you want to listen to this full interview with Melissa Haslip, it's available on moneymakingconversations.com.